Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, July 8th, 2020. Today, we visit Oceanside, California in San Diego County to talk to Sean Hallman, who owns and operates Shadow Ridge Spirits Company. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. As a woman, diversity has always been important to me. It is one of the reasons gender parity is a hallmark of our show. Historically, the American whiskey industry has been dominated by white men of Anglo-Saxon descent. This is common on both the distillery floor and the executive suite. But we've started to see a welcome change in recent years. Not only are women owners and master distillers less uncommon, but there's also been an increase of the number of black-owned and operated whiskey distilleries. Chris Montana, an African-American, and his wife, Chanel, own and operate Dunor Craft Spirits in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Their distillery, unfortunately, was damaged during the recent anti-police brutality riots. That said, they plan to reopen after they finish repairing and rebuilding. Another black-owned distillery is Fresh Bourbon Distilling Company in Lexington, which has been recognized by the state of Kentucky as being operated by the first non-enslaved African-Americans to make Kentucky bourbon. And here in Southern California, African-American Sean Hallman, whom we'll interview later in the show, owns and operates Shadow Ridge Spirits Company in Oceanside, just north of San Diego. But perhaps the most notable new actor of color on the scene is Tennessee's Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey and its founder, Fawn Weaver. Nathan Uncle Nearest Green was an African-American slave, and but for the critically acclaimed whiskey that now bears his name, his contributions to American distilling, this is, after all, the man who taught Jack Daniel to make whiskey, would be all but forgotten. Now the distillery's work and the brand's rich historic roots have been the focus of dozens of published articles and feature stories. Uncle Nearest recently made headlines again by collaborating with the Jack Daniel Distillery and its parent, the Brown Foreman Corporation, on an initiative aimed at increasing diversity in the American whiskey industry. The two companies have pledged a combined $5 million toward the effort, one thrust of which is establishing the Nearest Green School of Distilling at Motlow State Community College in Tullahoma, Tennessee. The STEM-based and employable skills-focused program is now awaiting approval from the Tennessee Board of Regents. Still other initiatives aimed at diversifying the whiskey and spirits industry have been recently launched. Diversity Distilled, for instance, a project by the Black Bourbon Society, aims to advise spirit brands on how they can create and implement robust diversity and inclusion policies within their corporate structures. Here at Spirits of Whiskey, we are heartened to see that so many steps are being taken to diversify the industry and to bring an even richer palette of spirits to the table. Our guest today on Spirits of Whiskey is Mr. Sean Hallman. Sean, I've known for several years. We met via whiskey, go figure. Mr. Sean Hallman, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's so good to have you with us. You are founder and, I, I forget the exact title, but along the lines of founder and distiller at Shadow Ridge Spirits Company in Oceanside, California, correct? Yes, I am. Which is awesome. very northern San Diego County. <laughs> yes, about as far as you can get. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's the closest guys. we can get to San Diego without actually going to San Diego. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So we would love to hear your whiskey journey. How did you end up where you are today? Well, I started my career as a Navy surface warfare officer. And, you know, I, I spent seven years in the Navy and I currently work for the federal government. Um, and I've always been a home brewer um, and I love home brewing. Um, I went to graduate school at USC and then I found out I had some extra money for school when I was finished. And I used that to do the brewing program at UCSD Extension. Oh, nice. And um, a lot of the beer industry uh, professionals or instructors there. And one of them was Yusef Cherney, who co-founded Ballast Point and also yep. and got, it's now cut, cut water. Yeah, cut water. And so he started the spirits competition at at the San Diego Fair. And um, I was in the room program and they asked for volunteers to steward. So I was able to steward that. And it was the very first competition. And a lot of the local distillers were uh, judging. So during the lunch break, I got a chance. That's where I actually met Trent Tilton uh, from San Diego Distillery. And, um, you know, they were Which is how we met. Exactly. Yeah, at his tasting room. And um, I picked his brain a little bit and, you know, kind of drifted away. And, uh, you know, a couple of years later, as I was completing the program, a friend of mine approached me about distilling. And um, I knew, you know, two thirds of it was fermentation and barrels. So I just had to figure out the middle part, the distilling. <laughs> so. Um, you, That's the only you, part I'm good at. The rest of it, I, I continue to mess up. I'm good at the drinking. Yeah, which is funny because I really didn't want to do anything in the brewing industry because I love the fermentation part, but I hate the packaging part. You know, you're never going to make a beer better in packaging, only make it worse, you know, picking up oxygen, et cetera. Right. So this seemed right up my alley. So, um, you know, when we were doing our fact-finding for distilling, we decided that, okay, while we're going through the licensing process, we will, you know, contract the still. And so I ran into Trent again uh, during that process. And, um, you know, he pointed me in the right direction. And I was able to connect with some people at California Spirits Company where I actually be began distilling under their license. And that was 2017 when we did our first production run. Okay. Very cool. John, let's, let's take it back a little bit more. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Southern California. I was born in Long Beach. My father was retired Navy, so I lived in San Diego uh, while I was in okay. elementary school and then moved yeah. up to up, Upland, California, okay. um, about 35 miles outside of Los Angeles. And then um, I went to undergraduate school in, at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And then um, I came back to California after graduation, and that's when I decided to join the Navy and go to officer candidate school. All right. Were you, were you, of course, you grew up in a Navy town, really. Yes. Uh, and your father was in the Navy. Did you, were you already a brewer? Started right around that time. Uh, Navy Surface Warfare Officer School was in Newport, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And I was there in January of 96 and it was very cold. So we had to find something to do indoors. <laughs> nice. So is the Navy at Camp Pendleton too, or were you not stationed down there? No, I was actually, that's where I did my last tour. Uh, the Navy has hovercrafts. Uh, LCACs or landing craft. Um, and that's where I did my last tour. I was an officer in charge of a LCAC detachment. And then I was the ground operations and safety officer at uh, Saltcraft Unit 5. Wow. Yeah, just, just so for the benefit of our listeners, San Diego is home to the, uh, the Pacific Fleet. Yes. And uh, Camp Pendleton is uh, a major, major, major West Coast Marine base. 
Yes, yeah. in fact, that's where my grandparents met in World War II. So without Camp Pendleton, I would not be here. Oh, yeah. Right. And if you're if you're ever driving up to Los Angeles from San Diego, you'll see a big wall that says "Home of the Swift Intruders, No Beach Out of Reach," and it looks like aircraft hangars on the west side of the five. That's a Soul Car Unit Five. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Very good. So after the Navy, you went to grad school and you got a, a master's degree in public administration. Yes. Okay. Yes. Very good. So, which, which sounds like great foundational work for distilling. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that. Um, you know, the federal employee, I worked corporate for about five years between uh, when I first got out and, you know, going to work back for the Navy. You know, I figured as a, as a federal employee, the public administration degree would serve me better than a Perfect. business administration. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, as a distiller or as you know, in the alcohol industry, when you're dealing with the state, the federal government, uh, mm-hmm. county and city government, public administration actually comes in handy when you're dealing with all the different organizations. I could imagine distilling is highly regulated in, in, in order to open a distillery <laughs> and meet with success. First, you must navigate this bureaucratic <laughs> labyrinth. Yes. It was um, extremely difficult. Um, if, you know, I distill under the Oceanside Distillers License. And, um, you know, so if, if it's a partnership. You know, that was the first distiller in Oceanside. So the city didn't really know how to handle the fire rating. So our barrel room, two hour rated, you know, the sprinklers, um, everything that had to go along with it, the city of Oceanside had to rely on other cities with distilleries mm-hmm. to make these decisions. So, uh, right, this was the case all over the country with the craft, oh, yes. the craft, the craft distilling uh, explosion because cities in many states they had no laws on their books on on how to license these places. No, regular. in fact, when it was built, uh, the craft distillers license wasn't even a thing yet. You know, that was 2016, and the permitting process for our facility started in 2015. So, you know, prior to the craft distiller license, it was just a regular distilled spirits production facility. So a tasting room wasn't allowed. So we basically have a very, just a large lobby for our tasting room. Right. They were treating everyone as though they were MGP. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what next? <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you, you took up distilling. Mm. Yes, I, I took up the stilling and really it was an extension of brewing. You know, I love working with barley. There are so many delicious varieties of barley on the market. I love working with specialty yeast and bacteria. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this just gave me a chance to play without, you know, having to worry about the hops, having to worry about the freshness, to be honest with you, having to worry about the sanitation all the things that kind of take the fun out of uh, fermentation. So, mm-hmm. you know, this has just been amazing. And having the opportunity to actually do this, you know, in the licensed facility is just incredible. Right. When you first started distilling whiskey, were you distilling it from drinking beer? Uh, no. But basically the recipes that, you know, from beers that I enjoyed making without the hops. So mm-hmm. I really wasn't making a beer schnapp, but I was relying very heavily on, you know, the same mashing principles, you know, the same flavor profiles of the beer mm-hmm. and the same flavor profiles of the yeast. You know, I've, I've hardly ever used distilling yeast. I always use an ale yeast just mm-hmm. because oh, I know the, yeah, the flavors that you're going to get from it. I mean, White Labs has this beautiful poster of their 96 plus yeast and bacteria with every flavor profile. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at a, a distilling yeast, it's just going to say, you know, makes alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Again, for the benefit of If you're lucky, it makes alcohol. (laughs) 
<laughs> Again, for the benefit of our listeners, Sean used a term, beer schnapps. Everyone's familiar with not because they had a bad experience with it in high school or college. <laughs> um, but beer schnapps is whiskey that's been distilled from drinking beer, basically. It's whiskey with hops in it. Now, not hopped whiskey because there are whiskeys that are hopped later in the process. But um, So anyway, here we are. Now, you are African-American. Yes, and I am. There are not a lot of uh, whiskeys made by African Americans, much less probably distilleries owned by African Americans. We are in the midst of an explosion, sort of a, a new awakening in this country with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, etc. Talk to us about your experience with regards to whiskey making and running a distillery. So I'm used to you know, being the only black face in the crowd, to be honest with you, you know, growing up skateboarding, you know, surfing, skiing, there's just not a lot of African-Americans that participate in these certain items. But, you know, I'm, I'm a Southern California kid through and through. So, and then, you know, as I, you know, just in the military, there weren't very many black officers. So I guess this really isn't that new to me. And I also noticed just being in the, you know, San Diego for, you know, your listeners don't know, as a a beer town. I mean, there's, there's, yep. there's breweries almost on every corner and, you know, there's not a lot of African-Americans in the brew house, you know, or on the production side of uh, making alcohol. I'm not very familiar with wineries, but I mean, now that, now that we're learning more and more about the history, uh, African-Americans played an integral part in early whiskey production Very in the United so. States. Right. And so, you know, this has been great. I mean, uh, I hate that something, you know, like, you know, the George Ford incident had to happen to cause this explosion. But I'm very happy that it, it's coming to the forefront of that, you know, there are African-Americans in this industry. We want to be part of this industry. I mean, as we mentioned before, you know, the barriers into this industry are, are very, very stiff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you know, so, sometimes tragedy begets awareness and awareness sometimes begets action. And yeah, absolutely. that's where we see change. Absolutely. And hopefully that's exactly what's going to happen. So Shadow Ridge, what, where did the name come from? So Shadow Ridge is actually a neighborhood in a Vista area, and uh, that's where we were going to establish our distillery. And then, uh, you know, we were overcome by events where we were contract distilling at California Spirits Company and then moved over to Oceanside Distillery. So, you know, just kept the name Shadow Ridge, and we're actually going through rebranding of, uh, you know, just going to be called SR Distilled. And, and why are you changing it to just SR? Well, there is a um, there's a wine called Shadow Ridge, um, and um, yeah, the United States trademark uh, did not want to grant a through enough to cause confusion in the class. They don't right. separate beer, wine, and spirits. It's just one class. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're actually going to rebrand. Everything's going to look very similar. We're just going to incorporate under the name SR Distilled. Okay, cool. I was yeah, I was wondering that when you sent the other logo. <laughs> yeah, but we'll know. Yes. yes. No, yeah, we're going to go through a transition. Uh, yeah, unless I, you know, yes, we're going to go through a transition period of probably about a year mm -hmm. and include both logos and then, uh, you know, just phase these Shadow Ridge out over the next year, year and a half. And then you can make up all manner of things where people say, what's the SR stand for? You can come up with, you know. Exactly. It's going to buy us some time to figure out exactly what SR is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sexy something or other. Yeah. <laughs> sexy Rickett. <laughs> Along the same lines of the of the logo, your labels are gorgeous. Who did your design? Thank you. Um, actually, a friend of a friend uh, named Alejandro that uh, 
he actually owned a cigar store for a while and was a graphic designer. So, you know, that heavily influenced. And, you know, when I saw he knew what I was thinking and he actually just, you know, brought this vision to fruition with the labels. And, um, you know, I think he did it. He did a great job. He actually designed the logo and the labels. I love how the label like kind of goes up. It's down on the sides and it comes up to the circle. I think it's gorgeous. And then all the different, I want to say floral patterns, but it's more, they're almost Florida Lee pattern ish, like in that type of vein, the little, I don't know what you call these. Yeah. The, the little flourishes, I guess. Oh, I guess. Just like little, yeah, yeah. little flourishes. Yeah. yeah. He, he did an amazing job. Yeah. yeah no, he, they're beautiful. Uh, and it kind of yeah. looks like ocean waves a little bit, which yeah, I think he, is appropriate for San Diego. No, he, he, it did. And he, you know, he brought in the cigar ring influence that I really wanted. Um, you know, the, basically the only thing that I chose was the color of the labels and, you know, just the style that I wanted. And, you know, he just ran with it and did an amazing job. Cool. You know, I, I worked with Alejandro for about a year to come up with, um, you know, basically the branding for this, because I know in this industry, uh, sometimes people care more about the bottle than what's actually inside the bottle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they so, are. Uh, special. Now, all of your bottles are 375s currently, correct? E- yes. Yeah, tell me, tell, tell us the story of that. So, all of our um, maturing has been done in 5, 10, and 15 gallons. We're extremely small batch. So, uh, the 375 made a lot more sense to take the market just to be able to supply and to replenish as opposed to a 750 milliliter. Mm-hmm. And they're beautiful, but that's presented you with something of a challenge when it comes to off-premise retail. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of liquor stores that only want, they're only licensed to sell 750 milliliters. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine that's a distributor in Chicago and, you know, he confirmed that basically, you know, the, the spirits industry in the United States has been programmed to only deal with 750 milliliters where, you know, you'll find another country that spirits are, you know, 500 milliliters, 700 milliliters, even 250 milliliters. Right. I feel like I heard something recently that that rule might be going away for the United States. I'm going to have to look into that. That would be great if it wasn't because A, out of country people only do the 750 milliliters for us because we have to have it. So... And it is inconsistent across alcohol categories. A couple of years ago, we were doing a a sake dinner. And the sakes were in all manner of various sizes. We were like six or seven sakes across the dinner. We're like, what's the deal? So we looked it up. And indeed, sake is exempt. Hmm. Oh, wow. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yes, I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know about you, Philip, but I'm ready to do some tasting. The whiskeys. You make four, correct? Yes. Yes, I currently have four whiskeys on the market. Okay. And they are? There's a bourbon? Yes. There's the Hallman Rye? Yes. Okay. Humbly named. Um, uh, after my father, actually. There you go. I, I, I thought that might be the case. Um, yes. You make a couple of single malts. I have a One peated thing. and a non-peated single malt. Okay. And, and before we taste, excluding your brand, what is your favorite type of whiskey? Is it single malt, rye, bourbon? Irish, Japanese? Uh, 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 oh, gosh. You know, I mean, it really depends on the day, but I do like a nice rye whiskey. You know, the spiciness of it is a little more spirit forward. Uh, what my whiskeys tend to be, 
I believe, a little more spirit forward. They're all 90 proof. You know, I, I do enjoy good bourbon and a good single malt. So I, I'm sorry. That's a little. No, it's... no, no, that's good. My favorite is a is a single malt non-peated. And then for American whiskeys, I prefer rye over bourbon. Sorry, bourbonites. Sure. Um, but uh, of course, all of the whiskeys are before any other spirit. And I, I, when I go to events that only have a couple of different blends or one bourbon and that's it for the whole I was like, you guys don't have anything else. You have one bourbon that's supposed to do the whole category, which is like got 18 different things in it. But yes, I will drink any whiskey before anything else. So, And because of my work, I'm not saying. Anyway, so shall we, shall we taste through the whiskey? Yes. Do you have a preferred tasting order? Usually, yeah, I do bourbon, rye, the American single malt, okay, and so then the heated single malt. Just because the bourbon's a little softer than the rye. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. Now I, I'm going to not lie. I've I've gone through quite a bit of the American single malts already. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, not and then today, and then and, no, not today. <laughs> and then and then the rye is getting a little dipped into. But I today will be the first time I'm trying the bourbon, and mm. I have tried the peated single malt, but I'm not too much into peated, so I've only tried it. So there's just still a little bit missing. But okay. So. Excellent. I, I could. Uh, I will. I will tell you right now. I will speak up for the peated. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I will offer the first note on the bourbon. Uh, this bourbon screams leather, and I love a, a leathery whiskey. Thank you. Oh, it does. You're, You're right. Welcome. Thank you. You know, so, I know what um... I'm talking about now and again. <laughs> well, I was smelling so... it, and I'm. I didn't smell it, but I definitely no, taste it. No, I, I, I'm, with, I'm with you there. It, it doesn't, there's a sweetness on the nose. Um, and then on the palate, there's leather. And I just, uh, I delight in that. Actually, now that I've tasted it, if I smell it with my mouth open after having tasted it, it smells like, I don't know if they even have these anymore. There was a Wilson store in the mall back growing up where it was all leather. All leather <laughs> yeah, Wilson suede and yeah. leather. <laughs> and it smells like the Wilson store. There we go. But only after I already took some in my mouth. So <laughs> so the, the grain bill on the bourbon is uh, 53% corn and then three different level roast of barley and uh, 5% rye. Wow. Really uh, low rye. Yeah. Only about 5%. I really like, so it had a different sweetness because I used some crystal malt. So the sugars are, are right there. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so not all the sweetness comes from the corn since I had such a low percentage of corn, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, they mentioned before, I love working with barley and, um, I love working with German malts because I think they have a lot more flavor. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the, basically, you know, the, the Munich and Vienna malts are what I really like to play with. This is where um, your, your brewing background really, really supports this, you know, innovation yeah. here, I think. Yeah, because I basically when I build a grain bill, you know, I start with the barley and then basically, you know, from there, the law, you know, OK, I'll make sure that I have at least, you know, 51 percent corn, right. uh, you know, a you know, a higher percent of rye when we get to the rye. But, um, you know, that's really why I that's the core of my grain bill is the barley. I really do like this. And I think maybe it is because you have such a high barley, um, high barley content. It gives a little bit more maltiness mm -hmm. and not as a corn sugar tends to be a little sharp. Yeah. And um, since I don't have the luxury of having my spirits sit in a barrel for six to eight years, I need that to round out. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I tend to, um, you know, really push the envelope with the other grains to uh, to soften up the spirit a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cool. 
All right. Well, I'm going to try the rye. So the, the rye, the higher percentage. Um, I'm, I'm going to say this. I don't know if anyone's told you this and don't be mad if this isn't a good, but this, <laughs> this brings me to a childhood smell. I, I smell Play-Doh. I smell Play-Doh. <laughs> Do you smell that, Philip? No, you, you, but, okay. but I'm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ride the wind with you. Have, do you know what Play-Doh smells like? I do. Okay. Well, I yeah, I do too. It's not as salty as Play-Doh, thank God. No, no, <laughs> definitely no. There's no, no. No, but I always like as a child, I always loved the smell of Play-Doh. Like everyone's mm. like, don't eat the Play-Doh. I never ate it, but I always loved the smell of Play-Doh. Like, so the uh, the rye is about sixty percent rye, about five percent corn, and then of course. Uh, some Munich, Vienna, and some crystal malts. Wow! So it's almost—it's almost the just—just it's—it's the bourbon flipped. Yeah. Basically, yes, yes. It's pretty yeah. hot. I it's mean, a, we've all heard of high—we've all heard of high rye, high rye bourbons and high corn ryes, but never high barley bourbon or high barley. Yeah. Rye. <laughs> Good for be a you. Little more... It does not taste like Play-Doh. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Any at all? Oh no, that's really good too. That's I really love. Mm-hmm. Like that's definitely a, a, a different kind of rye, and I like it. No, this is lovely. Have you had any um, tasting events where you did any food pairings or anything like that before this whole COVID? We've only done one actually when we had a, a soft opening of you know are our spirits ready? So we did a we did some pairing with some dark chocolate, some uh, sorbet sorbet to cleanse the palate. But we haven't had a food pairing uh, per se since. Okay. Well, we'll have to rectify that once this COVID nonsense is indeed, done. Indeed, because I, w- I, w- I would like to eat with this whiskey. This yes. Is, yeah, yeah. So the American single malt. Yes. Talk so <laughs> the American single malt is definitely my ode to brewing. Uh, whenever somebody would ask me, hey, how long have you been brewing? I want to start brewing. And I'll ask them, what do you want to brew? Oh, an IPA, a Belgian, et cetera. I, I'm like, uh, no. You probably want to start with a stout or a porter because they're easy to cover up mistakes. Mm-hmm. So when I started fermenting for whiskey, um, this was my first fermentation uh, because I added a dark roasted malt in there, like uh, it's a chocolate that. malt. I taste that. And, um, you know, that could really cover up flaws. And, <laughs> you know, I was really surprised on how well that flavor traveled through the still oh, yeah. to the other side. I tell yeah, you. And, um, if there's, if there's a, is there, if there's a fault here, I can't detect it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. And I, you know, I tell everyone that that one as far as for me to pull out tasting notes is the easiest uh-huh. because it does have that, that coffee chocolate finish at uh-huh. the end. Yeah. I love all of your whiskeys, but this, I think this is easily the most characterful of the four. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, I can definitely taste that dark, malty, chocolatey. Yeah, it's good. And then that um, is matured in an ex-bourbon barrel. Okay. One of yours? Or... Um, so when we started, because I wanted to start production at the same time, we were actually able to get some Balconis baby oh, blue nice. barrels. Yeah, because, you know, traditionally they did all their maturing in five-gallon barrels. So they would end up at home brew shops all over america and as i mentioned my friend that owns guadalupe brewery he was able to get some so i said you know this is fantastic because i thought i was going to have to wait on the production of the you know the two single malts but i was able to you know to distill the bourbon 
get that in barrels, the rye, get that in barrels, and then also the American single malt and the peated single malt to get that in barrels also. Wow. And so now I'm at a point to where, you know, my, my barrels that are, that I've matured for two years, I have uh, some 15 gallons and some five gallons that, you know, that are over two years and I'm bottling now. And then I'm backfilling those with uh, both single malts. Okay. All right. The peated or what you just call your single malt whiskey? Yes. So that is, um, you know, I wanted to put an American twist on it. So it's the, out of the grain bill, about 60% of that grain is smoked. And then out of that 60%, 60% of it's peated and 40% of it is cherry wood smoked. Mm. So it's not 100%, you know, peated uh, barley, nor that 100% peated grain bill. But um, I wasn't going for a, a campfire or a you know, Lafroig and Lagavulin profile. Um, I- I'll say here, the cherry wood explains a lot. It does. Yeah. Actually, as I taste this one, I do a lot of barbecue smoking and I'm going to be smoking this weekend for my roommate's birthday. And I think this will be served and, alongside. You know, and that's exactly what I had in mind when I came up with this grain bill. Something that you can have, you know, enough that you can I love a good steak. I love a good smoked brisket, uh, pulled pork. You know, sometimes you want a whiskey with that and, you know, that kind of cuts through the fat a little bit. Yep. And I thought that the cherry wood smoke, I didn't want to use a mesquite or a hickory, but, you know, I wanted something a little more unique, you know, in the grain bill. But I also wanted something that wasn't too overpowering that you could still drink and still taste your food. I know sometimes that smokiness can numb your tongue a little. I have a, a cherry, a spiced cherry bitters that I use when I make my perfect Manhattans instead of Angostura bitters. And then once upon a time, I was in a contest to become a brand ambassador for Grant's whiskey. And we had to come up with a three-part recipe using Grant's as one of the ingredients. And I came up with the cherry Grant and I used the, their whiskey, the, the Grant whiskey, and the cherry bitters and grenadine. And I did it in such a way that it really kind of brought out, obviously, the cherry. And I called it the Cherry Grant because Hollywood and it was Grant, whatever. <laughs> but I could totally see making the Cherry Grant with this instead of the Grants and having that whole uh, peated flavor really touch down with the, with the barbecue. Oh, that'd be interesting. Very that interesting. Would, that would be a great segue to our cocktail talk, but I have a couple of spirits questions still. <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> Sean, you have the you you have a distillery only cask strength edition of one of these, don't you? Yes, I do. Oh, which one is that? Yes. What is- uh, it's a rice whiskey that's a matured in a um, a bourbon barrel. It's it's a what whiskey? Rice. Oh, rice. Oh, the rice whiskey. Ooh. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. And how, oh, yes. how come that's a I mean, distillery only? That's not an unknown mash bill or, or, or grain choice, but it is unusual. Well, yes. Yes, it's a uh, 100% rice, and I have to give Trent Tilton credit for that. He said, hey, you should do a rice whiskey. And, you know, it really pushed the envelope on the fermentation and mashing just because you have to serialize it. But, you know, in Asian countries, they've been making rice spirits for millennia. Right. And so I just did some research and bought a lot of enzymes and was able to get the sugar that I needed out of it. You know, was able to find some sake yeast and some L yeast that had the flavor profile that I was looking for. Distilled it to about 125, proofed it down to about 125 and put it in the barrel. Wow. And um, it's been playing in there for probably about 
18 months. Okay. Is that going to see the market at some point? Yes, as soon as I can uh, get my formula approved by the TTB. Oh, okay. That's always the problem, isn't it? <laughs> they're, they're probably thinking, rice, well, that's the FDA. That's, uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So are you able to do you can you taste it when you're at when you go to the distillery or is it still not no one can have it but you? All of our tastings are by appointment only. Okay. And so uh we are able to taste it. Oh great. Okay. So road trip. Road trip. Very <laughs> soon road trip. Yep. Right. Very good. Very good. So about cocktails. We discuss cocktails with all of our guests, but we never ask them what their favorite is. We rather we said we we ask what are your go tos? What do you what do you what do you prefer in terms of category? A stirred, a shake, and a built muddled uh, stirred cocktail. You know, does looking at water while I drink my whiskey neat does that count as a cocktail, or do I actually have to put something in there? Uh, no, that doesn't count. No, um, you know, probably for my bourbon, um, I, I really like a, a good smash cocktail, um, you know, bourbon smash with uh, some lemon, simple syrup and mint. That That is probably um, as far as a whiskey cocktail. That's probably one of my favorite. OK. All right. Sometimes I do substitute the rye and uh-huh. they're basically, you know, the same cocktail. I've hardly I have actually made a chocolate old fashioned with that American the American single malt, Ooh, the non peated. Yeah. Uh, with chocolate bitters, a dash of chocolate bitters, a dash of orange bitters and you know, some orange zest. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really brings out that that finish mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the uh in the spirit. Yeah. And uh I, I don't I really haven't had too many you know, cocktails with the with the peated spirit, you know, the peated whiskey. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky. It is. Tricky. It, is. It, is. it is. It's it's tricky. It's tricky. It really is. Now you make some other spirits. You make a couple of rums. Are you a fan of rum cocktails? If as long as they're not too sugary. You know, of course on, on a hot day, um a mojito's refreshing. I know it's not very original. No, but, but that's true when it's very refreshing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's refreshing. So I'm looking more for refreshment with a rum cocktail. Um, you know, and then a, a, a dark rum, I, I prefer to drink it just neat or maybe with a little bit of ice mm-hmm. okay. All right. or a dark and stormy, you know, if I, if my, if my arm is twisted. <laughs> we have actually gotten the dark and stormy on this show before. Oh, nice. Is there anything? I'm so glad we had this time together. Yeah. Would you, do you want to point our listeners to a way that they can purchase your whiskeys and, or point them to where they can make an appointment to come taste? Yeah, absolutely. Our website is uh, srdistilled.com. Um, there's a link to the Oceanside Distillers online store on our website. And then also they can contact us through our website to make appointments and they can follow us at SR Distilled on Instagram. Awesome. Great. Wonderful. Well, Sean, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is no. very much fun getting to, to actually taste these whiskeys with you. And um, I'm impressed with all of them, actually. And I no. and I even like the peated one. And you know how I feel about those. Because it's, it's not overly powering, <laughs> which I you like. Know, thank you so much. You know, not only for me and, um, you know, African-American distillers out there. And, you know, just the craft spirits industry in general drink local yeah drink local i love it yeah early and often yes early and often thank you so much thank you so much for being on the show world of wheezy is up next stay with us 
Hey, Louise, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Did you have a nice uh, hiatus for the holiday week? I did. I went camping with some friends to try to uh, escape the heat here in LA, although where we ended up, it was still hot as hell. So, um, but you know, we were able to dip in a lake, so it was wonderful. Oh, that's nice. I wish I could be in a lake right now. Uh, Were you still in Southern California for this trip? I was in Southern California. I was just north of LA. I should have gone to the beach. Which takes us to Oceanside. (laughs) Yes, Oceanside, California. That's where Shadow Ridge Spirits Company is. And that is our Whiskey of the Week. Awesome sauce. I really enjoyed their rye. Yes, so the Hellman Rye, uh, that's named after Sean's father. So um, that was nice, uh, a nice homage to him. So what you, uh, would you feel about it? Well, I loved it. You know, I love rye whiskey, so I was thoroughly enjoying it. And I, because, I guess because it was so hot and also knowing that this distillery is in Oceanside, I got to thinking about how it would be so delicious um, to make a smash, a rye smash with that. Ah. With that spirit, uh, with a little simple syrup and lemon and mint, uh, I just thought, how refreshing would that be with still a little bit of like ballsy bite behind it. And then once I started really thinking about that, I thought, well, you know, what would taste really delicious with that is some soy glazed grilled mackerel. I love all of the fish that come out of the waters down there in San Diego. And I've had some really great mackerel. And I think that like the fatty fish pairs really well with um, a rye whiskey. And so, but because, you know, it's summertime, I'm thinking like, okay, if we had like a nice soy glaze and then a fresh pineapple and radish cucumber salad to go with it. Oh my goodness. I think would be super delicious. You got a whole meal right there. Yeah. I mean, that's what I do. (laughs) That I don't count sheep at night. I think about the the next dishes I'm going to make. So yeah, that's it. That's what I would do with it. Well, that sounds delicious. And I can't wait to try all of that again together. Maybe I'll do that, you know, instead of instead of the next barbecue, then maybe the next time I go to the market to get a big barbecue meat, maybe I'll grab that instead and do that refreshing. It's been extremely hot. And I think a nice meal like that sounds perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's the summertime. I just love fish and I I can eat fish morning, noon and night every single day of my life. But like this time of year, especially when I'm thinking about a lot of different spirits that we associate a little bit more with cooler climates, you know, I think there's still a way to enjoy them in a slightly different manner this time of year. And a lot of it, the pairing, it's like the last thing I want right now, honestly, is like a big fatty hunk of meat. I mean, to me, like you could do the same exact preparation, even with just a soy glazed mushroom, like a big portobello, if you were vegetarian, and that would be perfect this time of year. You know, you don't have to be vegetarian to eat that to enjoy it as well with your rice mash. So all sorts of options. Great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to hearing about what we're going to come up with next week. Sounds great. I'll talk to you then. Please visit our website to see our show notes on today's podcast at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you can see our upcoming topics and guest roster and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salon. Slunch of 
Spirits of Whiskey is a production of First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available on Anchor, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts can be heard.